Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. From the very first time TV viewers heard this music and were told the truth is out there, it was clear that The X-Files was not going to be your typical TV drama. But no one could have predicted that the show about a couple of FBI agents investigating supernatural and unexplained phenomena would become one of the defining TV shows of the 90s, influencing the TV landscape for decades to come, kickstarting internet fandom and influencing scores of women to take up careers in science and technology. Never mind making it cool to talk about UFOs, aliens, and government conspiracies. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of History of the 90s, we're going to dive into the mysterious world of the X-Files. When the X-Files debuted in 1993, it was nothing like the other one-hour TV shows that were on the air. Most were workplace ensembles, like ER, NYPD Blue, and Law & Order. X-Files was more of a 70s cop show with a strange twist. The criminals were aliens and other supernatural creatures. It starred two no-name actors with little acting cred, and it was in the overlooked Friday night slot on the Fox network, which was only eight years old and was still trying to find its place among the other big three networks. So not exactly a sure thing. Despite everything stacked up against it, The X-Files became a massive hit, with a cult following and a legacy that continues more than 25 years later. But before we get into all of that, let's go back to the very beginning. The idea for The X-Files came from screenwriter Chris Carter. During the late 1980s, Carter had earned his chops in Hollywood while writing for Disney. His specialty was comedy, and he'd worked on a few Disney screenplays, none of which were very notable. Then in 1992, Carter was hired by Fox to develop new TV shows to attract a younger audience to the network. The first thing he pitched was The X-Files. It was inspired by a few TV shows from Carter's youth, along with some interesting stats he had stumbled across. According to a survey conducted in the early 90s by Harvard professor Dr. John Mack, 3% of Americans believed they'd been abducted or had contact with an extraterrestrial. That's 7.5 million people who were convinced they had an alien encounter. That's huge! Mack was a highly respected psychiatrist and academic who had won the Pulitzer Prize for his book on T.E. Lawrence. He'd make news in the 90s when he published another book called Abduction. It detailed the stories of people who claim they had alien encounters, which wouldn't have been that big of a deal, except Mack came to the conclusion that they were telling the truth. He believed them, and he became a media sensation making the rounds on talk shows like Oprah. So Carter took this idea of alien abductions and combined it with his love of the TV show The Twilight Zone, which aired from 1959 to 1964, and another TV show that aired for just one season in 1974. 
Kolchak, The Night Stalker, starring Darren McCavin, was a show about an intrepid Chicago newspaper reporter who investigates paranormal crimes committed by supernatural creatures, like werewolves, vampires, and shapeshifters. It was a spin-off from two hugely popular TV movies, The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler. And even though Kolchak was only on for one season, it was a cult favorite because of its blend of dark humor and spooky monsters. Writer and X-Files expert Zach Handlin said Kolchak laid the groundwork for a show like The X-Files. If you go back watching it now, it's 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 pretty goofy. A lot of it doesn't work. Um, you have to have a huge tolerance for a certain kind of cheese. Um, but it's very, very cool because you can very, very much see them inventing that structure of the monster of the week. The structure that would kind of be very key to the X-Files, which is and like that sort of vibe of anything is possible. These things that we think are ridiculous, they could totally be happening just under our noses. After hearing Carter's pitch, Fox was reluctant at first. They weren't looking for a sci-fi show. They were thinking more along the lines of a family or teen soap opera type drama. But the fledgling network was desperate for a hit and decided to take a chance on something totally different. After getting the green light on the pilot, Carter had the difficult task of casting the roles of FBI agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully. David Duchovny was cast first, despite a pretty slim resume. His biggest role before The X-Files had been on a show called The Red Shoe Diaries, which was billed as an erotic drama series distributed by Playboy. But Fox executives liked his wry humor and his intelligence, and I'm sure it didn't hurt that he was a total hunk. Duchovny has said that he was kind of a snob about television and didn't really want to commit to working on a TV show at first. He was more focused on a career in film. Plus, Duchovny said he was worried people wouldn't be interested in a show about aliens. In the end, his agent convinced him to take the job. After Duchovny was cast as Fox Mulder, Carter and crew started looking for their Dana Scully. They auditioned Cynthia Nixon, who you may remember from Sex and the City, along with Jill Hennessy, who ended up on Law & Order. Then, 24-year-old Jillian Anderson, who was out of work and living with her boyfriend in what she calls a seedy L.A. apartment, landed an audition. She had done some small theater gigs and had one TV credit making a guest appearance on the collegiate drama Class of 96 on Fox, which got her foot in the door for the X-Files audition. When Anderson started reading lines with Duchovny, it was clear she was their scully. Chris Carter says the chemistry between the two was there right from the very first moment. We're going to talk about that chemistry in just a little bit. When Carter turned in a rough cut of the pilot, Fox liked what they saw, and they ordered 13 episodes to run Friday nights at 9 p.m. The premiere aired on September 10th, 1993. Major Mulder, I'm Dana Scully. I've been assigned to work with you. Oh, isn't it nice to be suddenly so highly regarded? So who did you take off to get stuck with this detail, Scully? Actually, I'm looking forward to working with you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, really? I was under the impression that you were sent to spy on me. TV viewers were introduced to FBI agent Dana Scully, an unwavering believer in logic and science, who was assigned to work with agent Fox Mulder. 
He is obsessed with the paranormal thanks to the disappearance of his sister when they were kids, which he believed was the result of an alien abduction. Mulder and Scully would become the sci-fi archetypes, the believer and the skeptic, which is a pretty cool twist because up until then, in most cop shows, it was a common trope for women to be the emotional ones whose judgment is clouded, compromising the investigation. But in The X-Files, Mulder is the one who constantly needs to rein in his emotions while Scully acts as the voice of reason and logic. It was a total flip on the typical gender roles on most procedural shows. 12 million people tuned into the first episode, which would be amazing in 2021, but was just okay in 1993. And even though the show remained around 80th in TV ratings during the first season, it managed to build up a loyal following. From the beginning, it was clear The X-Files was going to be a different kind of show. It gave us a sense of, of kind of a world where if you just kind of ducked your head a little bit lower under the surface, you would see everything kind of coming dangerously close to spitting out of control and things, all kinds of things were possible. Zach Handlin says the show took a unique approach, alternating between episodes that advanced the show's overall mythology about an alien conspiracy taking over Earth and scary standalone episodes referred to as the Monster of the Week. The first Monster of the Week appeared on episode three, called Squeeze, about a mutant serial killer named Eugene Victor Toombs, who eats human livers and can squeeze into incredibly small spaces. It looks a little silly today when you go back and watch it because the special effects haven't aged hugely well, but just that idea of this person who could like fit himself and get into places there where you thought you were safe, it's deeply unsettling. And that was something that the X-Files did really, really well, is it took these safe spaces and made you feel like you, you weren't, they weren't so safe after all. X-Files writers pushed the boundaries and made viewers scared to sleep with the lights off with disgusting creatures and horrifying storylines, including Flukeman, one of the show's most enduring and iconic monsters. The Chernobyl spawn mutant made its way to the sewers of New Jersey after accidentally stowing away on a decommissioned Russian freighter. Mulder, this is amazing. Its vestigial features appear to be parasitic, but it has primate physiology. Where the hell did it come from? I don't know. But it looks like I'm going to have to tell Skinner that his suspect is a giant blood-sucking worm after all. Then there was the near-feral Peacock family from home, Pennsylvania. The episode featuring the creepy, murderous family was inspired by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes. And it was the first and only X-Files episode to get a mature audience rating because of the graphic violence. And the master of horror, Stephen King, helped write a particularly scary episode called Chinga in season five. It's about a little girl with a very disturbing doll. I don't like this storm, Mommy. We're only going to be a minute. I want to go home. You can see why that X-Files was by far the scariest thing on television at the time. The surreal and creepy show Twin Peaks, which aired in the 1991 television season, was the closest thing to the X-Files. But X-Files, despite all the terrifying monsters, was somehow more grounded in reality, which had the effect of making it more believable and therefore more scary. It made you think that anything was possible. The X-Files was similar to Twin Peaks in other ways. They both had a very unique cinematic aesthetic that wasn't yet common for TV shows. 
Chris Carter often noted that he and his X-Files collaborators aimed to make a mini-movie every week. And they did a pretty excellent job. Everything from the moody synth music to the shadowy noir cinematography. Carter has also acknowledged that he was inspired by Twin Peaks, which he pays homage to in the X-Files pilot. If you look closely, there's a poster of the Twin Peaks murder victim, Laura Palmer, hanging over Agent Mulder's desk. As I said, X-Files had a loyal but modest following during the first season, enough for the network to order another 11 episodes, bringing season one to 24 episodes. The show was given a boost by an article in The New Yorker in April 94, which called The X-Files TV's first otherworldly procedural and compared it to The Twilight Zone, but much sexier. Another review in the Orange County Register called it the Twilight Zone of the 90s for thinking men and women who would rather ponder invisible cosmic truths than go out and party down on a Friday night. The good reviews certainly helped, but something else was going on that would help push the show's popularity during the next few years into, sorry, I have to say it, into another world. Early fans of X-Files created a buzz around the show when they started turning in droves to the internet, which was just becoming more accessible to the general public. They became the first internet fan base of the 90s, calling themselves X-Files, P-H-I-L-E-S. The show seemed to speak to people who felt like outsiders or disenfranchised, and soon those people were finding each other on the internet in chat rooms, where they could talk openly about all things paranormal and UFOs, something that had never really been discussed in the light of day. In the very early days of X-Files fandom, the main place to chat was in Usenet groups, which were the early equivalent of internet message boards. Fans from around the world dove into the conspiracy storyline and dissected the monsters of the week initially posting more than 800 messages a day on a special news group called alt.tv.xfiles. Fans talked about some of the more pressing issues. Why does Mulder drop his gun all the time? Who is Cancer Man, also known as Cigarette Smoking Man? And what is his connection to the government? And the writers of the X-Files were all in. They did a great job of engaging with fans on the internet. They often lurked around in chat rooms and on message boards, answering questions and talking with fans. Apparently, they even named some of the show's sidebar characters after fans they met online, as a tribute to their dedication to the show. In Season 9, they did something really fun in the opening credits. A brief list of FBI contacts, witnesses, and contributors flashed on the screen each episode. And that list was actually composed of fans' usernames taken from an official X-Files message board on Delphi. Each week, the dedicated X-Files tuned in to see if their name was included in the credits. And the writers also listened to what fans were saying about the show. Writer Jim Wong says there weren't really trolls back then, but when he went into chat rooms to talk with fans, they told him that Scully, his word, was being a dick. Some of the fans were put off because she didn't believe in anything. Wong says they originally wanted to hold off on Scully having a mind-changing experience until the end of the first season. But because of the response from fans, they wrote an episode that flipped the Mulder and Scully dynamic much earlier. 
These Usenet groups were text only, which meant people mastered the art of using text symbols to make pictures, something called ASCII artwork. And users were forced to come up with creative shorthands since there weren't any emojis. The shorthand persists to this day. G-A-D-D-C-C-X-F were shorthand for Gillian Anderson, David Duchovny, Chris Carter, and X-Files. D-D-E-B and G-A-T-B were two of the first email fan groups, David Duchovny Estrogen Brigade and Gillian Anderson Testosterone Brigade. ADBB was an acronym for All Done Bye Bye, a message Mulder got on his phone at the end of the episode called Blood. ADBB became the unofficial sign-off for fans in chat rooms. Later on, when technology allowed fans to post images and other media from the show on fan websites, Fox tried to shut them down with legal action. Fans fought back by creating a viral pro-fandom campaign titled Free Speech is Out There, Protecting X-File Websites. The term foxed was inspired by this period. It's used to this day and means when a studio threatens legal action against an online blogger or forum user. X-Files fans can also take credit for coming up with another important term. Shipping or shippers. It's short for relationshippers, who were fans that wanted to see a full-on romantic relationship between Mulder and Scully. Fans that were against the pair getting together were called no-romos. To this day, shippers remain the de facto term for fans who want to see characters get together. This is across all fandoms and all genres, from Jim and Pam on The Office to Sherlock Holmes and John Watson on Sherlock. The chemistry that Chris Carter noticed the first time he saw David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson read lines was impossible to miss and became a huge part of the show's success. You see it from the pilot. It's, it's there from the start. The two actors have terrific chemistry together. Um, and, and the way the show is willing to play off of that and sort of lean into the idea of these two being very close and maybe being romantically interested in each other. But there's always something that gets in the way or there's always like this sense of the danger is too present for them to really have personal lives. The chemistry between Mulder and Scully also led to endless, highly emotional conflicts on these X-Files Usenet newsgroups. Shippers versus No Romos battled over whether Agents Mulder and Scully should become a couple. Chris Carter weighed in early on when he stated that in his words, there would never, ever, ever be a romance between the two. He even made an episode in season three called Syzygy, which showed all of their incompatibilities to discourage shippers. While investigating a rare planetary alignment, Mulder and Scully bicker like children with digs that get personal and pretty passive-aggressive. If it's no bother, if it's not too big a deal, maybe you can get me a few photographs of that thing which bears absolutely no resemblance to a horned beast. Sure, fine. Whatever. The whole shipper craze went totally nuts in season four when Scully had alien-induced cancer and Mulder gave her a hug and kissed her on the forehead. Then in season five, shippers' hearts melted, and they were convinced they had won the battle when Mulder, confined to a hospital bed, made this appeal. Scully, you have to believe me. Nobody else on this whole damn planet does or ever will. You're my one in five billion. But it wasn't until season seven that Mulder and Scully finally sealed the deal with a kiss 
On November 28, 1999, Mulder and Scully touched mouths in celebration of the new millennium. And the will-they-or-won't-they debate was as good as done. But there was more to come for patient shippers. In addition to the great chemistry between Agents Fox and Scully, the show was also pretty funny at times. One of the kind of the, the joys of watching the show as it sort of came into its own in the first few seasons is when it realized that it could kind of poke fun at itself and have it not fall apart. And the more it was willing to sort of mock itself or point out the tropes that it was playing in, the more self-aware, the kind of the, the livelier it got and the more the more experimental and interesting it got. And something else that helped with the show's success was the fact that it was tapping into something, a feeling that had been around for years but had not really been spoken about. X-Files writer and producer Howard Gordon says the show's focus on government conspiracies gave voice to a creeping unease that the government must be hiding things from us. Borrowing a phrase from Clear and Present Danger, he said truth needs a soldier, and Agent Mulder was that soldier. He's the guy who goes against the conventional wisdom, who fights his own government, his own agency, to get answers. David Duchovny agrees. When trying to explain the show's success, he said obviously it tapped into something the nation wanted. He said, I think it has to do with religious stirrings, a sort of new age yearning for an alternate reality, and the search for some kind of extrasensory god. Couple that with a cynical, jaded, dispossessed feeling of having been lied to by the government, and you've got a pretty powerful combination for a TV show. A 24-year-old fan who was interviewed in 1994 explained it this way. He said there are a lot of people of his generation who have reason to question what they've been told by the government or by their parents, and that might attract them to X-Files. As for creator Chris Carter, he said the show was playing on the universal fears of the unknown. Carter said we all live in fear, and a lot of the time, we just deny that we do. The X-Files was especially refreshing for viewers who believed in aliens and UFOs. They flocked to the show, which finally recognized some of the things they'd believed for years. The show was so popular that during the early days, it was common for people who belonged to UFO groups to bring VHS copies of X-Files episodes to their monthly meetings and pass them around to anyone who missed an episode. The belief in UFOs was central to the show, best illustrated by that famous poster in Agent Mulder's dingy basement office, a fuzzy photo of a UFO with the words, I want to believe. Within the world of the show, the origin story of the I Want to Believe poster is that Mulder bought it from a head shop on M Street in Washington, D.C. In real life, Chris Carter explained to the Smithsonian.com that the poster was something he asked his props crew to make. The picture of the UFO came from a collection of photos that were taken by Swiss national Billy Meyer and published in a book in the 1970s. Turns out, though, the props crew didn't get permission to use the photo, and Fox was slapped with an intellectual property lawsuit a few years after the X-Files debuted. So they eventually changed the photo, beginning in season four. The original I Want to Believe poster is now on display in the Smithsonian, along with some other props and scripts from the X-Files. Carter always felt his show was an entry point for people who were curious about the possibility of extraterrestrials. He's admitted that there's no hard evidence to suggest Earth has been visited by beings from other worlds, 
but he believes the government is capable of withholding information about it if they had. So The X-Files may have started off as a show with a small following of quirky but dedicated fans, but it eventually grew into a bona fide mainstream phenomenon. The show won the Golden Globe for Best Drama Series in 1994, and its first Emmy came in season three for outstanding writing on the classic episode Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Meanwhile, The X-Files was climbing up the ratings and the fan base was growing and growing. It was a common thing for fans to get together at each other's houses for viewing parties, and nearly 10,000 people joined the official X-Files fan club. Thousands more made their way to X-Files conventions all around the United States, which were often attended by Chris Carter. There was also an official X-Files website, and there was an official internet forum on Delphi, making it one of the first network shows to enter the age of the internet. And then in the fall of 1996, the show was moved from Friday nights to Sunday nights, where it hit number 11 in the ratings, getting about 20 million viewers per episode. The core audience was men, ages 18 to 34. People who had grown up on Star Trek and Star Wars and were looking for a new kind of sci-fi drama to entertain them. The show was such a massive hit that the network wanted to cash in on the mania. So in 1998, an X-Files movie was released called Fight the Future, which was also a major hit, earning $198 million at the box office. Around the same time, the show moved production from Vancouver to Los Angeles, and there was a short-lived X-Files spinoff called The Lone Gunman. That was also the peak of the show. It stayed popular, but ratings started falling. And then in 2000, David Duchovny left the show over a dispute about syndication earnings. The X-Files carried on with Agent Scully as the main protagonist, which cemented the character's place in pop culture history as one of the ultimate TV show heroines of all time. I'm not sure if you've heard of this thing called the Scully effect, but it's a real thing. In 1993, there were few female characters on TV that went beyond the typical ideas of womanhood. Most female characters were wives. Dana Scully, on the other hand, was an FBI agent and a medical doctor. There really weren't any other female characters like her on TV at the time. And so Scully influenced a generation of women to pursue careers in law enforcement and STEM, science, technology, engineering, and medicine. And that is the Scully effect. According to a 2018 survey, 63% of women in STEM fields today cited Dana Scully as a role model. 63%, that's massive. Some Scully fans have also pointed out that she didn't really get the respect she deserved on the show. She didn't even have her own desk. But you know what, doesn't matter. She's still considered a feminist icon. The original X-Files series went off the air in 2002 after nine seasons. There was another movie, which most fans would rather forget about, in 2008 called I Want to Believe. It made about $68 million, which isn't terrible, but a lot of people thought that was probably going to be the end of the X-Files franchise. Then around the 20th anniversary of the show, Gillian Anderson called up Chris Carter to ask him if he would revisit Mulder and Scully one more time. An X-Files panel at Comic-Con around that time convinced them that there was still an appetite for the show. 
In 2016, X-Files fans were treated to six more episodes in season 10. Then in 2018, an 11th season with 10 episodes was released. That final season included the shocking revelation that the world's best bad guy, cigarette-smoking man, had impregnated Agent Scully with science. If you haven't seen it, I'll just leave it at that. The revival seasons attracted legions of new fans who joined original fans, sharing their love of the show on social media with the hashtag, I want to believe. And in season 11, which ran in 2018, 25 years after the show started, fans finally got a shot of Mulder and Scully in bed together. It wasn't the full-on sex scene that some fans had been clamoring for since the original series, but it was enough to have shippers freaking out. Gillian Anderson took to Twitter to mark the occasion, tweeting ATTHS, which is X-Files shorthand for, and then they had sex. Anderson has said that season 11 was her final kick at the can, and Chris Carter says he won't do another season without Anderson, so it would appear that it's case closed for the X-Files. Well, sort of. Fox announced in August 2020 that an animated comedy X-Files spinoff was in the works. The project is currently titled The X-Files Albuquerque and revolves around an office full of misfit agents who investigate X-Files cases that are too wacky, ridiculous, or downright dopey for Mulder and Scully to bother with. They're basically the X-Files B-team. Chris Carter is executive producer of the project. Whether or not The X-Files lives on as a TV show, it has cast a shadow over nearly the entire television landscape since its debut. Once it reaches a certain level of popularity, it just it's in the water. It just becomes something that, that any show that wants to play in that area, wants to try and tell these scary stories or tell these sci-fi stories or deal with aliens or whatever, it has to at least acknowledge that potential influence. Not only did it influence paranormal-type shows like Lost and Stranger Things, it can also be seen in modern crime dramas like CSI, Bones, Castle, and Sleepy Hollow. The aesthetics of X-Files inspired countless shows, beginning with The Sopranos, to become more cinematic, relying more on visuals and sparse dialogue to tell the story. The oscillation between Monsters of the Week and the larger overall mythology has been copied by many sci-fi, fantasy, and horror shows, as well as non-genre shows like The Mentalist. And the series-long conspiracy of X-Files, which was fun, but admittedly at times hard to follow, prepared audiences for the ongoing narratives of The Walking Dead in Game of Thrones. Many of the writers who worked on The X-Files have gone on to make other groundbreaking television shows. In particular, Vince Gilligan went on to create Breaking Bad, while writer Howard Gordon was one of the driving forces behind the shows 24 and Homeland. The X-Files also had an impact on more than just TV. As I said earlier, it impacted the way viewers were able to talk about things that normally weren't discussed in the open. Conspiracies, UFOs, government secrets, making those things which have been around for decades suddenly mainstream. And sadly, The X-Files predicted the paranoid reality that we live in today. But when some of the original writers were asked recently if X-Files is to blame for the current conspiracy culture thriving on the internet, they scoffed at that idea, 
saying even Mulder wouldn't believe some of the conspiracy theories floating around today. Thanks for joining us as we take a peek inside the X-Files. And thanks to my guest, Zach Handlin. He co-authored a book with Emily Todd Vanderwerth called Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files. It breaks down every single episode of all 11 seasons, plus both movies. And a very special thanks to listeners Terry and Damien, who suggested this topic. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a suggestion for a topic, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History and on Instagram and Facebook. Or send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. I love hearing from you guys. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.